my generation. Today we are making history. It's embarrassing to us as a nation all over the world. They're talking about Chicago. I campaigned on change. You voted for change. And I plan to deliver change to our government. You're listening to Chronicle Headlines. One of the reasons I'm perpetually excited about Columbia is that we have chosen to be different. On today's show, part-time faculty members have re-elected President Diana Valera and the rest of the steering committee. We speak with them later in the show. But first, it's been one month of legal cannabis in Illinois. What are people saying about legal dispensaries? And what has become of the local drug dealer? Weed. Stay off the weed. Tomorrow is 420. We go out onto Hollywood Boulevard. We ask a random group of people the same question. Tonight's question is, have you ever smoked pot? From sports talk to late night TV, weed has been a hot button issue since the passing of the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. Weed is currently illegal at the federal level, but Illinois has become one of 11 states to legalize the substance for recreational purposes. You've gone to a dispensary, and which one have you gone to? In just one month, Illinois marijuana dispensaries had nearly $40 million in sales. And so going in there, like, we were just, I was just excited. I'm like, okay, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be a cool experience. Finally, there's, it's legalized here. But that isn't quite the whole story. Once I saw the prices, I was like, uh, this is a bit too expensive. Taxing, very bad. I have a news editor, Paige Barnes, in studio with me to touch on some of the more nuanced angles of legal weed in Illinois. Um, before we get started with any of this conversation, Paige, very briefly, what are the requirements to purchase weed legally and where can it be consumed? For somebody who wants to buy cannabis, whether it be recreational or medicinal, they have to be 21 years or older. And then if they can use it, um, so that could be smoked, could be edibles, they have to be off Columbia's campus, and they also have to be in a private residential area. So it could be outside in someone's backyard, but not anywhere where the general public could see you. Okay, so you can't smoke outside walking down the sidewalk. That's still a no-no. You can't smoke on Columbia's campus, and, and that's, if correct me if I'm wrong, because Columbia gets federal grant money, so if Columbia were to let you smoke on campus, they would lose said federal grant money. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So in the academic buildings and in the residence halls, you cannot smoke cannabis. Okay, so good that we got that out of the way right off the bat, but we're sitting here, Paige, with $40 million or nearly $40 million in sales from weed in Illinois. The lines were around the corner on the first day. It's been a very busy first month, but uh, you spoke with someone who visited a legal weed dispensary. What did they share of their experience? Man, they they said that they ended up waking up um, and getting in line around 9.30 in the morning. But by the time he had gotten there, there were already lines um, that started forming at 7.30. So the they, dispensary, they'd been there for two hours. For two hours, yes. And the dispensary didn't open until 11 a.m. And he said once he got in, it was still very crowded. Pretty easy process. Um, they handed him a piece of paper. He ordered it. Um, however, he said that it was super duper pricey considering what he could get from his private dealer. Mm -hmm. We'll touch on that in one second, but these long lines, did he go the first day? Was it the first week? Yeah, it was within the, the first week. Um, so, so lines were still wrapping around the corner even a week in. 
Then touching more on the prices that he was talking about, um, what did he purchase? So the wait was about two hours. How much was it? Do we know that? Yeah, he said that um, he went to EarthMed Dispensary, which is in Addison, Illinois, and ended up buying, um, what, I don't know, <laughs> ended up buying um, some sativa uh, fruit chews and then also some gummies um, and was telling me that it was around like $40 where he knew that he could get it for cheaper from his personal dealer. Mm -hmm. And so he had been consuming cannabis-related, weed-related products even before legalization. That's what it sounds like. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. And then what did he estimate he could have purchased from his dealer? He said probably a little bit more than half because there wasn't taxes. So if something was $15, like he said, the um, THC-infused chocolate bars, he probably could have gotten them uh, or at the dispensary for $35. Yeah. So we heard from him briefly earlier in the open. Is taxes the main reason behind these prices being higher, or are these dispensaries just charging more? Oh, most definitely. They are the taxes that contribute to the pricing. So then other than him complaining about the price, did he complain about quality or anything else when it came to the dispensary? Oh, not at all. Um, Jose said that it was overall, like, it, it ensured that the quality of it was going to get him high, um, as well as making sure that it wasn't laced with anything. Um, so the, the quality was good, but the price, he said, really got him. So when he's talking about safety and that was on the top of his mind, did he go to a regular dealer? Did he just find random people on the street and purchase cannabis products from them? What was his purchasing habits? From the way that he described it, he had a regular dealer that was unlicensed that he had bought from. And so going to a dispensary was more of the experience just to see what it was all about. Um, but he said definitely in the future, he would go to his street dealer first. And if the street dealer was out of any products or just charged too much, which he said would be a rare instance, he would go back to a dispensary. Not EarthMed, but maybe try some more of the ones that are in the downtown area. Yes, yeah, so I kind of want to shift gears then to exactly what you're talking about. Is the people who are, shall we say, unlicensed sellers of cannabis products, had you spoke with one, is that correct? Or what was yes. the relationship there? Um, I had spoken with a street dealer um, and in the article is going by the pseudonym John Doe. Mm -hmm. And John Doe has been selling cannabis and is still selling cannabis that I know of um, for the past three years as more of a um, side hustle amount of just to get extra mm -hmm. cash. So how has legalization impacted their business? Well, interestingly enough, Doe said that he wasn't affected at all. Um, he still had the same amount of customers as he had before um, and is also not changing his prices to compensate. And I think that's interesting because these dispensaries from what I've talked to from the sources have said that it's been really expensive. Um, but he said that he's just going to keep the same, same prices. So there's no difference in sales that he's been getting. No changing in prices. Has he done anything to prepare for the dispensaries coming in and legalization? That is interesting because I asked him if he felt a little bit more comfortable selling um, just because it is legalized. However, he said only slightly a little, he felt a little bit more comfortable um, because he feels that 
the police are going to be a little bit more tough and vigilant about catching those who are unlicensed um, selling because they really want that tax to go towards the state. So it sounds like the stories we heard from, from Jose, like that's not anything uncommon. People are not always feeling the dispensary hype. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So Paige, it doesn't sound like dispensaries are where everyone is going, but for Columbia students looking to legally purchase their weed, where is the closest dispensary they can go to? Of course, not smoking it on Columbia property or outside, maybe in their own apartments. Where can they go to find that? Currently, um, a dispensary um, company um, named Pharmacan is looking to open four recreational dispensaries within the Chicago area. And actually two of the locations are within the South Loop. So the first address that they're looking at is 418 South Wabash Avenue, which is across from Roosevelt University. And then the second one is 900 South Wabash Avenue, which is just a block away from Columbia's Film Row Cinema, 1104 South Wabash. So I, I think you were bringing this up a little earlier. People can literally walk to class and then pass a dispensary, potentially, if the permits fall the right way. Yes, that is correct. And I'm sure that the Chronicle will do a follow-up story when and if it comes to fruition. Okay, Paige, thanks for coming in. Go to um, ColumbiaChronicle.com for the full story. And don't forget to check out the front page cover. All the biggest stories you need to know have hit the stands in our February 3rd print edition. In Metro News, experts at the Climate Solutions for Action panel said the future of the Great Lakes looks bleak, and the reason why is linked to the climate crisis. Engagement manager at the conservation organization Audubon Great Lakes, Troy Peters, said around 389 species of American bird face extinction from rising global temperatures. But if temperatures stabilize, 76% of vulnerable species will be better off. Suzanne Malik McKenna works with Audubon Great Lakes and said there is hope. It is not an economic burden to do the right thing. We don't need a miracle. We just need to employ what we have. And we have so many resources, so much knowledge, and so much technology already happening. In Campus News, 2013 Illustration alumna Ali Cantarella won Alumna of the Year at Columbia's fifth ILO Awards for her illustration work. She was one of many winners in the 19 categories. You can find the full list of winners on our website. And Columbia introduced new minors for the fall 2020 semester. New minors include illustration, philosophy and religion, television studio production and directing, and immersive media. For requirements to declare a new minor and additional reporting on all these stories, you can go to ColumbiaChronicle.com or pick up a newspaper near you. But we have one final story before you go. Since May 2019, Columbia's part-time faculty union has negotiated a contract, voted to affiliate with the Illinois Federation of Teachers, and had the Department of Labor supervise its election. It has been a jam-packed past few months for Diana Valera, Andrea Diamond, Susan Van Veen, and Lisa Formosha Parmigiano, because that group was re-elected in the December election. While their time on the steering committee varies, the group has been leading CFAC for the past year. Now, I have one question for all of you. With all that said, what is something in the past year this steering committee is most proud of doing? Well, I think... <laughs> me, I don't know if I, I'm not speaking for everyone, um, but I would have to say finally, you know, successfully negotiating our contract. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the accomplishment of the contract and integrating issues. I mean, not only did we maintain some of the important issues from our last contract with seniority rights, but we also um, 
you know, had some new articles in there that were important to us, such as the diversity, equity, inclusion, and um, other ways that we can make sure that uh, uh, we're focused on student learning um, with class size and um, credit hour changes, things like that. With the same team in place, what do you all hope to accomplish in your next term? Well, with any, and this is Diana again, with, you know, we just said that the contract was a huge accomplishment, but with any, any time you get a, a, a contract, um, it's only as good as you can enforce it. And that means, you know, educating um, our reps, our members. Uh, we started uh, uh, a little bit of a, a campaign um, last year where we were bringing in uh, more training um, for our members to get um, educated on labor issues and issues that are happening nationally and then also um, within our contracts. So I think educational component is important for us. Um, I mean, speaking to that, I think that's the overall, from, from as far as I can see, as far as I'm concerned, the, uh, I'm sorry, and excuse my voice, it's a little bit hoarse here. Um, um, educational opportunities for the membership, both on union issues and um, and are specific to our contract, but also, as Diana says, larger issues. And because we've recently affiliated with a larger organization, um, making sure that our, our members are also aware of the opportunities that that affords them. For students and any non-union people listening to us now, why should they care about the election results? Well, I would think it's because we'll work to enforce the contract. Um, we were able to get our members significant raises, anywhere between 13 and 18 percent, um, and we're familiar with what needs to be done and how to protect it, So, and we have the contacts that, to keep leading and, and educate our members. We're, we're really at a wonderful junction. Also, if you pay attention to kind of what we've been fighting for all the time, uh, we will continue to fight for you. Um, as I say, accessibility um, um, to to the opportunity for education, that is to say, hopefully looking at how, how we can keep the cost of education from skyrocketing, but also once you're there, that you're getting the education that you came for, um, protecting class sizes, et cetera. And then just to I'll just check. add one more thing. This is Diana. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think we have shown, and I, I know we have a commitment to continue to show that um, – you know, even though the student may not be in our union, um, that we are certainly a, a leadership that is committed to student learning, students' concerns, and that we are absolutely committed to working together uh, around issues because I know there's this saying, in the, but it's an important saying, that, you know, our, our working conditions um, go hand-in-hand -hand with student learning conditions. And especially, like Andy said, what's happening across the country, you know, access to um, education, quality education, student debt. These are all issues that this union has um, taken up and are committed to, and we've built coalitions with students, and we're going to continue to do so. We are on with the re-elected CFAC Steering Committee. That's Diana Valera serving as president. Andrea Diamond is the vice president. Susan Van Veen is the treasurer, and Lisa Formosha Parmigiano is secretary. Now, throughout the campaigning process, did you learn anything from your opponents? And, and what I mean by that is, are there any policies, plans, or ideas you plan to adopt from them or maybe change a little bit in your own idea? 
I don't want to be the only one. Always, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, this is Diana, and I'll let others speak. But sure, I mean, there's always things that, um, um, in I think any kind of campaign like this, that um, we could always uh, look at and say, well, we could do that better. Or um, as a union, um, maybe this person can help improve this area. Um, we're always, always trying to do that throughout the campaign. Um, we're sure there was things that we looked at that said. Um, you know, these are areas that were part of our short-term or long-term goals, and um, we need to make sure we have a commitment to those issues. Mm -hmm. What would you say to the people who didn't vote for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Andy said it well. You know, a union's only as strong as our, our members, and so building unity has been a huge part of our um, commitment and getting members involved. We know, we realize uh, we're part-time faculty. Many people have other commitments, other jobs. Um, you know, we're grateful that uh, our members restored their faith in our leadership, um, and we welcome all voices. So for those that did not vote for, our, for us, um, we hope they get involved. We hope they come to meetings, um, participate, you know, come to these labor trainings, um, have their voice heard. Um, you know, we welcome all, all voices. One last question for the CFAC Steering Committee, re-elected this December. There are some members in the union who have been outspoken about the way the union has been run, complaining about communication and, and other issues. But do you have any plans to work on their complaints or address them so similar complaints don't come up during your next term? Well, I, I kind of feel like we've, we've answered that we've, to the extent that we, we invite everyone to be engaged. We invite everyone to come to meetings, to um, engage in the trainings, to become more involved uh, members. This is Lisa. It's Lisa. The only thing that I would add is there are a lot of members that have not been speaking out against whatever communication or however we've moved forward. So we have to always take into consideration um we're not going to ever be able to do everything in order to make everybody perfectly happy. We can do the best for the majority, and that's uh, what I think we try to focus on. We certainly hear and understand um, the concerns, and they will be addressed, just as Andy and Diana have said. But part of a process of, of being a uh, um, a one member in in a whole is that sometimes things aren't going to always be exactly uh, the way that you would do it, but we have to move forward with the majority of the voice. That was the reelected CFAC steering committee. Thanks so much for being on. That's all for this week. For more stories, go to ColumbiaChronicle.com or follow us on our social medias. We are at CC Chronicle on Twitter and Instagram, and the Columbia Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible by the collaboration of WCRX Chicago's Underground and the Columbia Chronicle, along with the chair of the Communication Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride. A special thanks to news editor Paige Barnes. Chronicle Headlines is produced by Blaze Messam. We'll see you all next week.